Father, I thank you that in a world that has so much information, so many sound bites, so much data, so, many, so much good advice, so much nonsense, so much in between, so many confusing things, so many helpful things that God, into the midst of that world that you speak. So as we come to your word and a topic and theme that we're going to look at today that is so central and impactful in our lives, might your word come with authority, might it come with clarity, might it come with conviction that it might liberate us. Help us to bow our knees before it. Help our souls, our minds, our hearts, our bodies even be engaged in consuming your word that we'd be hungry for it. And as we pray every single week, what we need most, every single person in this room, whether they don't yet know Jesus is king and hero and savior and redeemer, whether they've known him for 83 years, what we need most is to leave this place and to leave this time more impressed with him, more confident in what he's done, more hope-filled in what he promises to bring to completion. And so, Holy Spirit, would you lift him high that you might draw all of us after him and keep him loud in this coming week until we get to gather back together to sing the praises of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when he, meaning Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then they took him, and, and he healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you were invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Feel free to grab a seat. Jesus' parable of knowing which seat to take, it mirrors um, well-known wisdom literature. It's driven from Proverbs chapter 25 and a very similar text in that situation. 
but it's important to note that Jesus wasn't primarily giving practical advice or a strategy to avoid public embarrassment. This isn't about saving face in public situations. Jesus was really going after their hearts and something that was very core to who they were. And I would say it this way, they're very prideful hearts. We see this in in verse 7. Now he told a parable. When Jesus tells stories, you always got to look at the context, that they're they're contextually driven. There's something that's going on. And so he brings a story in to try to get a truth to land. It's oftentimes a very, very familiar truth, but it's one maybe we've become numb to hear. And so he sees, he's observing the sorts of places that they're taking. And so he tells them this story when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. At a party like this, as you'd show up, and this is a very formal occasion, uh, a wedding feast could be a wedding feast. It could also be another type of feast that was more formal. There would be a U-shaped kind of low couch, kind of cushions on the ground, and then a table. And the one who was hosting, the most important figure, would sit at the middle of it. And then from the middle, as you worked away from the the host, it would become the, like, one degree less important, one degree less. It would be whoever would. And then if you were out in the very far periphery, it was a way of saying, this person, they're here, but, but they're not central. And so everybody could visually see who was most significant in that environment. They wanted to be seen as significant, but not just significant, actually more significant then. See, pride is oftentimes not about some level of accomplishment. It's a level of accomplishment in light of someone else's one degree less accomplishment. And so he looks at them and he tells them this story. I'm not sure where I first heard this this phrase I'm about to to share. I think it might have been John Maxwell. I'm not sure. I did a quick internet search, and it was attributed to a ton of different people, so I'm really not sure who said it first, but he says it like this. He says, there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who walk into a room and say, here I am, and those that walk into a room and say, there you are. When you walk into a party, I showed up. Come talk to me. Come listen to my stories. Or you walk into a room and you say, oh my goodness, it's so nice to see. I'm so glad that you're here. These were here I am people. They chose the places of honor. They also chose the best guests. The host of the party was a leader. He invited the Pharisees, some religious leaders. He invited the lawyers. He invited people that had cultural clout and were impressive because the seat of honor didn't just elevate you. Your guest list elevated you. That's why Jesus then ends the the story. He says, hey, when you throw a party, not just be aware of what seat you take, but also be aware of the people you invite. Invite the people that don't have cultural clout. Invite the people that can't pay you back. This idea of like who is, where you're seated, it, it, it gives you a sense of value culturally, but also the people you invite. The guest list gives honor also. It's a sort of like, look how important I am that these important people showed up. Look who I'm connected to. A few years ago, uh, my oldest daughter was graduating high school, and uh, we went to this honors award ceremony at the end of the year. And we're gathered in the gym of the of Seahome uh, Auditorium, uh, the basketball courts, and, and we go in there, we're sitting up in the stands, and, and I look at the program, and Emma's name was all over it. 
there's like award after award, and I'm sitting up there, and I'm watching my daughter get called forward and handed this award, and then called forward and handed another award, and then I got kind of annoyed when they got to the award about most AP classes because they miscounted. She, she didn't get credit for three of her AP classes, and so even though she was on the stage the whole time, I'm frustrated that they missed that, and then what was, 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 was sick is all the times the pa- other parents look back, and their kids were there too, but they weren't there like my kid was there. Look back. They said her name again. They look back, and then after the award ceremony, oh, my goodness, you must be so proud of her. And I'm like, oh, I am so proud of her and me. And me, because, like, look what I produced. (laughs) Like, being proud of your kids' accomplishments, being proud and celebrating the accomplishments of others, that is wonderful. Stealing glory by proximity, it's gross. That was gross. That flinch of my ego was dark. Pride is a nasty thing. Why does humility matter so much? I'll give you a few texts. We could go all throughout the Bible, almost point randomly, and we can see how destructive it is. But 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For, and here's the reason, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God despises pride. He opposes, he stands against it. 2 Samuel twenty two twenty eight. you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty, a lift-up spirit. Uh, I, I deserve the higher seat before a fall. Pride is not just one type of sin. We might even say it's the mother of all sins. It's the sin that happens before all the other sins. It's the sins that say, God, I don't need to listen to your word. God, I don't need to do it your way. God, I don't need to follow your commands. God, I actually don't really need you. God, I am able to do this myself. God, I am able to accomplish enough. And then all of the the destruction that flows from it. The hosts, the Pharisees, the lawyers, they were, here I am, people. Look at me, I'm at the party. They were this pride-driven, and what they were doing was self-promotion. I'm gonna give you three aspects. We could do so many more of these that happen with kind of this pride-driven self-promotion. We'll just look at three of them. First, it's selfish. Second, it's empty. And third, it is unbearably heavy. Selfish and empty and heavy. Selfish. um, Here's a big problem with the here I am impulse. We can be so consumed with self that we don't have the capacity to care about the struggles and the stories of others. See, when you're in the room and it's always like, here I am, here's my wounds, here's my brokenness, here's my hopes, here's my achievements, here's my accolades, here's my dreams, here's my wants. Oh, and you have them and we all have them, but do you know that everyone has a backstory? Everyone's got dreams and hurts and wounds and needs and desires and longings and sadnesses. And one of the things that pride does to us is it it closes us off to those that are around us. It's a formal dinner with important people. But you also have in this scene, you have a man with dropsy. That's an old-fashioned 
term for the, for the um, ailment called edema. It's the swelling of soft tissue where your body, it, it just begins to, to collect, um, just, just retains water, and it swells up your soft tissue. It can be exceedingly painful. can actually end up resulting in, in organ failure. This man that came into this party was likely in significant pain and probably terminal. And he wasn't seen, except by Christ. The exchange between the Jesus and the religious leaders is telling. And without going too deep into it, I just want you to notice their silence. Did you see the guy? Did any of you even see him? Do you think we should heal him? And he asks this question, is it lawful to do on the Sabbath? And what's interesting about that question is it actually is biblically lawful. There's no prohibition against healing someone on the Sabbath. What had happened in the culture is that the churches had their own traditions. They said, well, our understanding of honoring the Sabbath means we cannot care for this person on the Sabbath, so we're not going to do it. So it might be that they didn't answer because they didn't want to look cruel, but they also didn't want to look like they were disobeying the cultural rules of the time. But then Jesus goes on and he heals the person. I think the next question he asks really gets at the heart of it. Here's the way he says, he says, wouldn't you, if you had a son or an ox, you had an animal and he fell into a ditch, wouldn't you pull him out? And the assumption is, of course you would. Here's the reality. They were such here I am people that this man mattered less than an animal. They were just closed off. His struggles, his story, it just didn't matter. And isn't that what pride does? How do I look? How am I acting? How are people thinking about me right now? And it just closes us off. How is that person doing? What are their needs? What are their concerns? What's going on in their life? When we are consumed with self, we have a limited capacity to care for others. To the extent that we are consumed with self, we have limited our capacity to care for others. I was at um, early February, I was at a multi-day um, staff meeting. I, I, I do very part-time work for Acts 29, a church planning organization our church is part of. And once a year, we have this central staff meeting where people fly in from all over the world. And it's really fun. It's really exciting. It's really busy. Um, and we get together, and there's a lot of strategizing and meetings and all these things. And at the end of it, and we've done this a couple of times now, is the person that leads the organization, he says, hey, we're going to end this last session by, by just encouraging one another. So it's a room of about 50 people, leaders from all over the world, and we're just going to take time and we're just going to speak encouragement and truth into someone else's life. I just want you to stand up and just say a couple of words about something that someone else does that's really encouraging. But then he always does this caution. But, here, but, but just know this, like if somebody doesn't say something about you, don't take it personally. Try to make this time about someone else. Don't the whole time be sitting there thinking like, what could, what's someone going to say about me? Think about what you could say about someone else. And if maybe if you didn't you say something about someone else here, you could go and say, and he goes like this, sets this beautiful moment up, but then does all of these footnotes to it. Like, hey, don't sit there and crave all the attention. Why? Because you know how it is when that happens in the room. Hey, we're going to take a couple minutes and encourage one another. Our hearts, our egos often flinch towards, I hope someone recognizes me. And that's not bad. But when we're consumed with it, guess what we'll never do? Recognize someone else. Or you do the strategy of like, wait, if I stand up and say something about someone else, then maybe someone I sit down, someone will say something about me. Self-promotion and pride is, is, 
It just turns us selfish. I love how Alan Noble says it in his book, You Are Not Your Own. He says, everyone is on their own private journey of self-discovery and self-expression. So that, at times, modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their own name so that everyone else knows they exist and who they are. Which is a fairly accurate description of social media. Look at me. Look at me. Turns to selfish. It's also empty. Um, C.S. Lewis delivered a lecture at King's College titled The Inner Ring. And he talks about the inner ring as this craving or desire to be in the inner ring of whatever group matters most to us at that time. To be in the know, to be part of the in crowd, to, to be at the right table, to have the higher seat at the party. In high school, boy, I would do this almost every lunch break. I would walk into the, the student-run store, which is already where the, the cooler kids would be, so I wouldn't go over here. I would go there. And then when I'd walk in the door, I'd scan the room as fast as I can and figure out which table is going to make me feel best about me. And so you'd walk in, you'd try to make snake in your way to that table, figure out if you could take a seat or not. And then like one of your good buddies would be like, hey, Rob, we're over here. And you go like, ah, oh, no, I got to go sit with them. Really, I want to be over there. I love how Keller says it in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The natural condition of the human ego, that it is painful or that it is empty, painful, busy, and fragile. That's the natural condition. We always want the higher C. You know, what do we do with this human ego that that can so often be empty as we try to fill it, and oftentimes through comparison. Again, quoting Keller, he says this, he says, the way the normal human ego tries to fill its emptiness and deal with its discomfort is by comparing itself to other people all the time. That's what was happening in this text. If I get the higher seat, if I get the higher seat, then I'm gonna be okay by having the better guest list, by being connected to the more connected people. But it's empty. It's always empty. There's always something better. There's always a higher seat. Take sports. This isn't true for everyone. By God's grace, some people actually just play sports because they enjoy it. But oftentimes what happens is you have the C team. You're a freshman, you make the C team, okay. But man, I really want to make JV. And then you make JV, Yes, I made it. I'm, I'm in the inner ring. Oh, but wait, there's varsity. Okay, finally, I made varsity. I'm, I'm varsity. That's amazing. Okay, now I'm somebody, but I'm on the bench. Oh, now I can start. Now I'm starting. I'm, I'm varsity and I'm starting, but I'm not captain. Oh, I made captain. Yes. Yeah, but you're at a 2A school. What about the 4A school? What about the 6A school? I mean, there's always something higher. Lewis does this illustration he talks about in the inner ring. He says, when we try to find our, our value, we try to find our rightness by going further and further into the inner ring, it's like peeling an onion. You keep peeling it and peeling it and peeling it, and by the time you get all the way in, guess what? You have nothing left. It turns us selfish. It's, it's empty. I love Jim Carrey's somewhat famous line. I wish everyone would get rich and fame, riches and fame and everything they've always wanted so they'd realize it's not the answer. That's why some people in our world that achieve the highest levels of success are so depressed because it's empty. The seats, even when it gets filled, it's still empty. 
It's also really heavy. It's really heavy. Again, quoting Kelly, he says, the problem with self-esteem, whether it is high or low, is that every single day we are in the courtroom. Just pause there for a second. The problem with finding our value on the seat that we're in, on the accomplishments we have, the recognition we get, is that every single day you're in the courtroom. Pride is so heavy because it's always there. Every time you post something to Instagram, did the right people like my story? Did enough people? Did I get invited to the right parties or did I get left out? What's that say about me? Every time you go into an annual review, are they going to recognize all the things I accomplished? Am I... Am I going to be seen as someone who... Now, oh, goodness, accomplishment and promotions and getting paid well and having recognition for what you've done. I'm not... We don't want to diminish or demean those things, but this need to have it seen, it's so heavy. You go into a meeting, did, they, did, did anyone like my ideas enough? Fourth grade, trying to play pickup basketball. When did I get picked? What number? Every time you go on a date with somebody... Well, they want to do another one. It just puts so much pressure on it. You can't even enjoy it because the whole time you're wondering, what are they thinking about me? Every audition, will I get the role that will finally validate me? Every trial, what team will I make? Every PTA meeting, will I get the golden acorn? If you don't know what that is, it was a big deal like 40 years ago. Every time you get dressed, Paul gave me this illustration, our, our executive pastor, he was uh, at a youth camp a number of years ago, and they were talking about pride and, and how we often, you know, we, like we dress in certain ways to try to show off things, and, and sneaker culture has been a big deal for a long time, it was a big deal then, and so he did this little experiment with this room of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of students. He says, here's what I want you to do, close your eyes really quick. So as everyone closed their eyes, he says, can anybody tell me the type of sneakers the person sitting next to you is wearing? And I have a room of hundreds. Nobody knew. You know why? Because nobody's looking at your sneakers. We're all just hoping you, they look at yours. Like that, that, we're just so consumed with it. I remember I was at Great Wolf Lodge years and years ago, and I sit in there, and you know, it's kind of an awkward place because you're in this like contained environment on water slides, so you're all wearing you know, swimsuits and things. And I just remember watching this, this teenage girl stand there with her arms just strategically placed over her stomach because she was just embarrassed. And I do the same thing. Every time I get up from a, you know, I'm at a pool and I get up from a chair, I try to like hold my gut in the right way and just walk, <laughs> you know. <laughs> try to get tan enough, you know. How, a great way to lose 10 pounds is just get a little bit tanner. Um, it's just heavy. It's just heavy. It's so heavy. We're just consumed with it all the time. Every performance preaching, oh, goodness. The whole time, the sermon, how am I doing, how am I doing, how am I doing, how am I doing? And when I'm thinking that, I'm not serving you. I love Keller. He says it this way. There's something, oh, I'll quote him in a second. Jesus does offer us something better, though. Really, in this text, he says, here's the way towards true honor. Here's the way towards, like, a true way of being towards exalted that won't crush you, won't turn you selfish, it won't leave you empty. And it's upside down. The, the way up is always down. It's humility will result in being exalted. 
And when you find it, it's incredible. Now, quoting Keller, he says this, there is nothing more relaxing than humility. When I first read that line, I was like, oh, that sounds good. Because you're just not frantic. You're not constantly trying to stuff the ego with something that can finally say, I'm okay. Give me the seat. I'll finally be okay. No, you won't. But there is something that is better, and it's humility. I'll go quickly through this next point, um, what humility is. So humility matters. It's deadly. God stands against it, and it leaves us crushed. What is humility? Let me start with what it's not. It is not insecurity or a false humility. It's not insecurity. It's not saying I'm a terrible person who has nothing to offer. And it's not pretending like you have nothing to offer, even though you know you do. John Bellion is one of my favorite musicians, just an incredible musician and producer. Um, and he, I love this line from him. He says, fake humble is a corny way to be arrogant. Pretending like you're not good when you are good at something, it's not humble. It's still pride, just wrapped in humility. Which I then, I tried to find... Um, that quote on Twitter, which was then appropriated by a number of other people other than John Bellion passing it off as their own, which I thought was ironic. <laughs> you know, knowing you're good at something isn't necessarily pride. I'll give you a biblical example of this. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, planted a number of churches, said this in 1 Corinthians 3, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. That's not insecurity. That's not saying, hey, you know what? I'm good at my job. I work hard. I parent well. No, and I'm boastful. I mean, if it's accurate. Like, a, I remember the first time I read that as a, he's talking about planting churches, and I read that as a church planter. I'm like, how can you say, how can you possibly, like a skilled master builder? Man, that's pompous. But Paul said it. 1 Corinthians 15, how about this one? I worked harder than any of them. How, do you say, how can you possibly say that? And here's how he says it. It's where he tethers it. Let me finish the verses to you. 1 Corinthians 3.10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than any of them, but it was not me, it was the grace of God in me. See, what begins to take us out of this place of, of rampant insecurity or false humility is to say, no, look what God has done. By God's grace, I got to be a part of it. So humility, it's not, it's not insecurity. It's also not self-loathing. Like, I want to try to note that. The things that in, in us that long to be seen and, and celebrated and valued, those aren't inherently wicked and bad. And so the, the goal of this is not to have people walk away self-loathing. The opposite of, pri of pride isn't shame. It's humility. So this isn't about feeling shamed. There's nothing in this text about self-loathing. So what is biblical humility? Let's take a look at it. Um, let's take a minute and try to get a picture of humility. Let me ask you a question. Who's the most humble person you know? Just think about that person for a sec. Did anyone think of themselves? I just wondering. Like, did anyone like that? We're amongst friends. You can be honest. That'd be awesome if someone said yes. Um, be awesome. Here's the most humble person I know. Christ. When we think of a picture of humility, and what's interesting about Christ is what makes someone humble is not a lack of privilege, it's not a lack of position, it's not a lack of power, it's not a lack of performance. Christ had all of those things more than any of us, and yet he was humble. It's what you use those things for. Where are they, or is it, is it here I am, or is it there you are? Look at this text from Philippians 2, 1 and following. 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now this beautiful description of who he is, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no one more strategically positioned, no one more qualified to speak about humility than God who gave up the highest seat, the throne, to go into a manger and then a cross. And God did. I mean, that text actually says the very principle, the punchline of this text, that everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. Jesus has the name above all names, but how did he get it? By becoming a servant to all. By being the ultimate there you are person. Now, in reality, none of us is humble except Christ. Not perfectly. But we can and hopefully we do move in degrees from pride towards humility. And we do it for ourselves, for others, for the glory of God. I'm going to give you just two simple strategies. Think more of Christ. Think less of yourself. And they're interrelated because to think less of ourselves, we actually have to think more of Christ. So we think more of Christ and we can think less of ourselves. Think more of Christ. For this, we just looked at that with this great Christ text from Philippians 2. My encouragement is just revisit it often. When I was in seminary, one of my professors, he began every single class by reading that Philippians 2 text. Every single class for a semester. Every, and I bet he's been doing it for 30 years. And I didn't get what he was doing at the time, but I do now. He was trying to battle our pride as he elevated Christ. Think more of Christ. Get grander pictures of him. The best way to cultivate humility is to think more of who Christ is. And as we do that, we can begin to think less of ourselves. You know, I'll ask you a question. Where do you see yourself in this story? When you read this text, like, where do you, where do you go? Are, are you the, the man suffering infirmity that needs healing? Are you the nitpicky, law-keeping people that can't even ask, answer the question about whether we should be compassionate towards this person? Do you find yourself the one vying for the bigger seed or knowing you're in the lower seat but longing for the higher one? Are you the host that's constantly trying to assemble people around them to make them feel better? Are you the ones that are outside the party that are just longing to have an invite? What seat do you think you deserve? The thing that will simultaneously humble and free you, humble and comfort you is this, knowing that you don't deserve a seat 
and yet you've been offered one. Knowing that you actually don't deserve an invitation to the party, and yet you've gotten one. And I want to tell you, it's not just to a wedding feast, but to the kingdom. Not just to a party, but to healing. And this perhaps is the biggest danger of pride, is that prideful people never hear the call of the gospel to come, and, to come in and be healed because they don't think they need it. Fabian Hartford in Seven Subtle Symptoms of Pride says this, pride will kill you forever. Pride is the sin most likely to keep you from crying out for a savior. Those who think they are well will not look for a doctor. Thinking of Christ more, more of who he is, more of what he's done, what he models, how he lived, how he saw others, and less of self. It's not self-loading. It's desperate need saying, I can't do it. I need healing. I can't achieve enough. I need someone else's achievements. I am completely unable to right my situation. Can someone come and rescue me? Like this man who came into a party who he wasn't invited to in order that someone might see him and heal him, just like the poor and the blind and the lame that need an invite. And what's great is when you see yourself that way, when you see the punchline of this text is yours, see everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. The gospel is this. This is what the gospel is, the story of good news of how God gets anyone. You and I are more broken and needy and desperate and unable than we can possibly imagine. We are more prideful, we are more self-focused, we are more consumed with self, we are more self-interested than we can dare fathom, and yet in Christ we are simultaneously more loved and seen than we dare dream. See, when I come into the lunchroom and just long for the table, Christ is the ultimate, there you are. When you stand there, he says, there you are, Micah, there you are. Oh, I came for you, I came to seek and save the lost. Marcus, there you are. That's what Christ does in the gospel. He says, I haven't looked past you to myself. I've looked to you that you might be with me. And when that happens, all the longing we have to be seen when you know that Christ has gazed on you, said, mine. He said, you're mine. I want you. I long for you. I came to give my life for you. I gave up my throne and I replaced it with a cross for you. What retweet or Instagram like could be better than that? The gospel does this. Everything our empty and busy and fragile eagles crave, we get better in Christ. The verdict is already in. There's no more courtroom of public opinion on your value. In Christ, we've been given the place of honor while at the same time recognizing we did nothing to earn it, which creates humble gratitude. In Christ, we've been given the greatest gift, the greatest seat, the greatest righteousness, the greatest future, the greatest protection, the greatest status, the greatest rest, the greatest everything. You can't boast in that gift, but you know what you can do? Enjoy it. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, exalted into the kingdom to enjoy the party with the king. 
Why? Because this king saw your need, saw your sickness, saw your sin, and forgave it. Let's pray. Father, make us receptive. Oh, whether it's receptive in seeing how damaging pride can be, whether it's receptive in seeing how relaxing humility can be. Just make us receptive to the truth of this text. God, I just, there's just such a, I, in my own soul, as I've just shared some of my own sin and failure and franticness and neurosis and just being so self-consumed and yet it's, it's a, pride is a pandemic. And yet, Christ, you want to come and, and deal with it, not to crush us, but to finally free us and to liberate us, that we might see what you've done in all of its brilliance and find rest in it, and that we might be able to then look out at others that, that have stories and needs and hurts that need to be seen to. God, just grant us the grace to believe this text, to apply this text, that we might be able to leave this place maybe just a degree or two freer from the things that turn us selfish and make us empty and weigh us down. To do that, we need Christ to get bigger. So Spirit, would you come and do that? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.